0: Welcome to The Vast Majority, I'm Jackman Deputy Editor, Micah Utrecht, joined by staff writer Megan Day. Hi, Megan.
1: Hi, Micah.
0: So you're back co-hosting this podcast with me. Uh, clearly, I am uh, very uh, comfortable and find it very enjoyable to uh, do things with you, like write books or ho- co-host podcasts. It's uh, we, we, we got a good thing going here, so I thought I would exp- expand it to the podcast.
1: You were like, hey, come on for like host one podcast with me. And then all of a sudden it was, hey, host another podcast episode with me. And uh, I don't know where this is headed, Micah. This is a little gateway drug. Got you hooked.
0: Uh, so for this episode, we interviewed Nikhil Saval, who is a recently successful Democratic Socialist of America-backed candidate for uh, the state Senate in Pennsylvania. And he won just a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, that's great news on multiple fronts. I mean, for one thing, it's just been such an insane six months in, in this country and in the world. I mean, we went from the Bernie Sanders campaign really being in full swing. Some of us even allowed ourselves to believe that we actually could have a democratic socialist in the White House. And we threw our all into that campaign, as you and I have talked about on this podcast and elsewhere before. And then we have this world historic pandemic uh, that really dashes all of our dreams and kills over a hundred thousand people in this country and what will end up being millions around the world. And uh, you know, we just we were, we were we were brought pretty high, and then we were brought pretty low. And then you know, a million other things happen. I mean, uh, we see these horrific video this horrific video of George Floyd being murdered by the police which is just such a a, a devastating thing to watch and but then you see these really inspiring protests in the streets and uh and so you know you're being just jerked one way and then the other over and over again over the last six months but uh Nikhil's victory, along with some other recent victories, like the victories in the state of New York, uh, really inspiring stuff, uh, have, me, have me feeling uh, a little better for the first time in a while.
1: I think that something that comes up a lot for me when I'm thinking about how socialists, progressives, leftists are sort of regarded in by people who are involved in mainstream politics is this pretty intense double standard where, you know, centrists and establishment Democrats can, you know, constantly lose and fail and a lot, you know, like not only allow, but collude in the sort of worsening of our society. And yet if they like lose an election, for example, in a world historical and completely humiliating manner, it's not a referendum on the, um, on the viability of those politics right and and so when bernie lost when bernie dropped out uh, you know, we heard what we expected to hear, which is, well, you guys had your shot and it turns out people don't like your politics, actually. They're not viable, um, they are repulsive to people, and you people should go back to where you came from. And, you know, that's, that doesn't feel very good. You know, Insult to injury, right? Um, and so it's really especially heartening. And then, of course, given everything else that you're talking about, I mean, the pandemic and, um, you know, even though, even though the protests are themselves incredibly heartening, the subject matter at the heart of the protests is You know, psychologically painful. And so it's really in the context of all of that, really quite heartening to see left politicians make it through.
0: So Nikhil Saval is a former editor of N Plus One magazine. He's the author of Cubed, A Secret History of the American Workplace. Uh, And he's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, as well as a uh, progressive organization in Philadelphia that he helped co-found called Reclaim Philadelphia. You can read about his own biography and a profile of him and his political work in Jacobin. Uh, I will link to the article in the show notes. Uh, and, uh, you know, most importantly for our purposes uh, here, Nikhil is the uh, su- recently successful candidate uh, for state senate in Pennsylvania's first district. Hi, Nikhil. Hi, Micah. How's it going? Good. Thank you for joining us. First, I just want to say uh, congrats on your victory, and you are a real inspiration to all of the small leftist magazine editors who write books about labor uh, you've 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 gone from being a layabout author and an editor to uh, you actually made something of yourself so you know nice nice work you're you're an inspiration to people like me <laughs> thank you thank you glad to glad to be <laughs> glad to be helpful so uh let's just start with uh I mean, I'm sure you're feeling like you're in the midst of a, well, those of us who have not recently won elections are feeling like we're in the midst of a political whirlwind. So uh, I imagine that's uh, orders of magnitude uh, more true for you. But just can you talk about uh, the, uh, the, the general political moment that we are in and uh, how you're seeing yourself uh, as, a, as a now, uh, you know, candidate-elect? Uh, relating to that political moment? I mean, you know, th- a moment that includes, you know, obviously like the end of the Bernie Sanders campaign, the coronavirus epidemic, the mass protests that have swept the entire country. So how, how do you see uh, yourself and your your victorious campaign in relation to all of that stuff that's going on?
2: Well, thank you. First, thanks for having me on. And thanks, Micah. Thanks, Megan. Um, thanks to Jacobin. Uh, you know, it's, it's odd. I would say that, coming into this election you know i i had i had a lot of doubts about our relationship to this moment you know and what on the one hand we were campaigning in a, you know early on we were campaigning with a surging sanders campaign um, and you know even before sanders was surging in wet february you know it was there was just a general i just thought there was a generally good Vibe in in the on on the left in broadly speaking in the presidential campaigns, and so I was excited. That seemed cool. Then we entered this pandemic phase, and um, which is horrifying on so many different ways. But but one is that I wasn't sure that it was. You know, I think we all had this sense that all the things that we had been saying for a long time suddenly seemed more acute to so many people. But I wasn't so sure of that. I guess I was worried that there was going to be this feeling that now we need a steady hand, we need experience, we need someone who's going to help guide us through this terrible time and not not shift dr- direction dramatically. Actually, it's the opposite. There's going to be a conservative tide. And, um, and so, you know, I think that's actually the thing that has fundamentally catalyzed the sentiment. I mean, I, one, that turned out not to be true. I think, you know, I think it has been true in varying degrees, but, like, it wasn't true. But I think that catalyzed the... The radicalization of all, that a lot of people may have been going through during the pandemic is, are these protests and the uprising in the streets where fundamental aspects of American society are being challenged um, as they were challenged you know, in, in the presidential campaign. And, but they're being challenged in, in, a, in, in a different way and in a way that I, I just hope to be try to be equal to it. I actually feel like I'm suddenly in this position where I'm going to be an elected official I'm, you know, I'm on the inside all of a sudden. And so, like, I'm excited and also nervous.
0: Do you have any ideas about how to accomplish that? I mean, if there are these kind of barriers to to meeting the the moment and, and sort of there, is, you know, after this imp- intense period of hope uh, from the left in an electoral sense, uh, now it's sort of shifted to the streets in, in, in a way. Uh, do you have any plans or ideas about how to sort of, uh, uh, you know, how, how to be a conduit for, the, for, for that, that action that's coming from the the street level uh, as an elected official? We are t- I, I have
2: some sense of it. I mean we've seen a few cycles of it in Philadelphia in particular, um, which I've had the fortune to be part of. I mean with the election of Larry Krasner to district attorney um, and uh, Kendra Brooks to city council, um, she was the first independent. First working families party candidate to win a seat on on city council, first independent in fifty years, um, it's in, or rather in the city's modern history, and Elizabeth Feeler, a democratic socialist candidate in South Philadelphia. So we've seen candidates who have come fueled by movements or come out of movements and then establish what is what like a kind of co governing relationship with with institutions, with organi- with unions, with with social movements in general, and I think it's actually the the easier part is maybe just make having an open having an opening to the left or like having an opening to movements like i feel like we all like especially as an or- community organizer as a labor organizer i i understand that part it's the the part that's going to be interesting is actually organizing the rest of a not necessarily hospitable democratic caucus around these demands and i think i can i think i understand ways to amplify demands the way to like to move people to make the office like an extension of the movements and then the question i think is there are people who for whom this is a completely unfamiliar style of governing right and and like or they and that's that's the gamble is like we actually we get into office and then we have to like there are not as many of us i'm there's in in the in the Senate or the legislature that's probably that's true in New York that's true lots of places but like a a single injection of like of this kind of energy can go a long way but we need more I mean ultimately like I think we just need to we need we need more and I know that it's going to be a long-term thing
1: I want to go back to the election results, and you said before we started recording that you were actually surprised by how well your campaign did, and I, you know, I, I heard that also from a few of the candidates who ran in uh, New York City. Um, and it seems like our people did really well. The left has performed really well recently, and I mean, basically since the sort of cataclysmic end of the Bernie Sanders campaign, which was very dispiriting. Um, actually, whenever there has been sort of smaller down-ballot elections, we've uh, we've managed to perform pretty well. I mean, I think that probably there's a Bernie effect there, just even though he's not in the running anymore, there's certain ideas in circulation and a certain style of politics that no longer seems anathema. So that's one thing. But then the other thing might actually be that in the pandemic climate. Certain styles of campaigning are necessary. Um, One of these, I know because I have participated in, is just like getting volunteers on the dialer from all over the country because you can't really go out door knocking the way you used to, or at least at certain points you couldn't. Um, And, you know, we've we've got the energy, we've got the volunteers. And so maybe the pandemic actually oddly made it more possible for us to break through. Right. I don't know. I'm just curious what you think about this. Uh, what do you think the reasons why it's not just your race, but actually other left uh, left wing down ballot races have actually been going pretty well in this very turbulent and in many ways, very dispiriting time?
2: I think you're exactly right. I think we you know, the the pandemic initially was very dispiriting and obviously the the, the Sanders Sanders's loss uh, was was, you know, deeply so you know feeling that we you know you had multiple kind of comparative advantages taken away from us one this like national candidacy that was that where we seemed to have some coattails and you know that was that was going to be driving a, a larger change across the country and then just not being able to knock on doors like that was just that's part of the ethos of our it's not just like it's strategically it's we think it's valuable it definitely works but also just knowing that um it's it's a kind of moral part of it too that you need to talk to everyone we're building a socialist majority we're building we're building like that's we know we know that that actually volunteers come out of that someone's door is knocked they then become an active person in 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 movement work just generally but yeah it was just the case that we we were more creative i think we just acted in in ways that were more and this was you know not all these campaigns were that distinct we a lot of us saw the need to do direct service work, which is now called mutual aid work. It's amazing how it, that term kind of came back into currency. But, um, but we, you know, we, we were, would talk to people on the phone, make sure that they had groceries d- delivered to them if necessary, connected to tenants rights representation. That was just instinctive. And we all did it, I think in very like, and so there was, there was that aspect of the campaign. And then, the fact that we just continued to work and the dialer did kind of like just technically, it did kind of recreate a lot of the feeling of knocking on doors. And we could talk to a lot of people. I talked to a lot of people who were like, I've never been contacted by a politician or political figure in my life. You know, that was that, I think that was unusual. Um, And our opponents didn't do that, I think for the most part, because all they know they assumed, and I think all they knew how to do Was to go up on TV. Was they obviously most of them raised more money? And I think that's all across the board, true. Um, And that just turned out not to be enough. I mean, it is. You know, it's still a little bit surprising. Like I think we like, but it's but now we just we know that this kind of organizing works. It pays off. Like it's like it's you can, and if and if someone else doesn't know how to do it. Um, and is not seen to be doing it also. I think the kind of perception of just not doing the, that, not seeing, like they, I think incumbents, the last thing I'll say about this is like, I think incumbents presumed that just by being at office, they would be presumed to be displaying leadership of some kind. And that just not is, is not true. Like, in fact, everyone just was like, I, you're not doing, you're, whatever it is you're doing, you're not doing enough. Like, I think that was just true for, for most incumbents. And so there was an, there was that anti-incumbent feeling as well.
1: So when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ousted Joe Crowley, the Democratic Party establishment and their partisans in the press basically tried to do a little bit of damage control by making it clear that they thought this was a complete anomaly, that they had been you know caught off guard, one of their guys was asleep at the wheel, but it wasn't gonna happen again, right? Um, and it's unclear really to what extent it's true that they just weren't paying attention to left insurgencies and that now that they know now that they know that this is a threat they can mobilize to stop it I feel like we're getting a lot of mixed messages because on the one hand you've got you know they were able to mobilize to stop Bernie Sanders right so that indicates that they actually are sort of despite themselves able to actually get it together to stop stop the left in its tracks but on the other hand in down ballot races you do have have uh, left challengers ousting incumbents and you've got you know our people squeaking through so i just want to hear what you think about that is this an emperor wears no clothes moment for the democratic party establishment um are they are they smarter than they seem or are they less smart than they seem and what does that mean for our chances
2: <laughs> they're they're definitely less smart i think than they seem i mean i think that um the evidence is sort of is not totally clear because, you know, Jessica Cisneros lost and the things that actually gave me pause at a certain point in the campaign where I was like, oh, that's not a good sign. But I think it is true that it's actually the things that they consider advantages are not really advantages. So like the fact that Elliot Engel or, or Joe Crowley can mobilize every, you know, tons of people to endorse them and that they can certainly raise more money and they could call on, you know, any number of people to run any number of independent expenditures for them. You know, those aren't advantages. Money is is a, a certain kind of advantage. It's not. But I think, you know, the other aspect of this is that The left has gotten quite good, actually, at fundraising. Like, I would just point this out, that that's, like, not insignificant. Like, Jamal Bowman did quite a good job. AOC did a very, certainly good enough job for that primary. I think, like, our model of fundraising in these district-level races, in particular, it works so that we actually are expanding the, the, like, the pool of people. We have a different kind of base of people to raise money from. We don't rely on the same kinds of people they actually are voters often in the district. I mean, it actually, it's just like an, into, it's just an entirely different model. And so I think we do have, we have figured something out and it won't work every time and it won't, you know, we can't, it also depends on like unique conditions, who the candidate is, the credibility of the challenge, how, how good your field operation is, whatever. Like I think that it just, what institutions like fall your way and what don't, but um yeah, we can definitely do it. They just they are not as creative. They're not as hardworking. They're not. They don't. They fundamentally don't believe in the things that we believe in, and and that 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 translates across the board. So, as far as the Sanders thing, and I know there are many different ways to explain this. It seems like a different order of magnitude to run in a Democratic primary, you know, in multiple Democratic primaries across the country, when you have people who are people identify as Democrats who like come out to vote for Democrats and they need to identify who the Democrat is. And, you know, we can exaggerate this because Sanders won California, which is an incredible achievement that has been extremely understated. I think it's like, I think people miss, I'm, I'm from California originally, Megan, I know you, you're in California. And like, I just, California is a complex, diverse state that has a lot of reactionary rich people and like you know it's still extraordinary but nonetheless it's i think it's a difficult it's a very difficult thing
0: yeah i mean it's the he's he's the final that's the final boss right like that's the the, the toughest uh nut to crack of them all is that uh that kind of race speaking of bernie uh, i wanted to ask you generally about your own relationship to uh to, to bernie and to the bernie campaign I, mean, I know you were involved in 2016. I read a uh, a great essay that you wrote after the 2016 campaign. I will fully admit that I was uh, trying to clear out some space on my bookshelves, and I was like, "Do I need this N plus one issue?" I'm gonna like read through it one last time, and I found this this essay uh, by you in there, and I was like, "Oh wow, yeah, actually, I do, I do want to hang on to this." Uh, but you 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 know you were involved in both campaigns, uh, and I believe you got uh, you were endorsed by Bernie this time around. Um, so. What what you know, what impact did the Bernie campaign have on uh, you either politically or your sense of what was possible in politics? Or did he help inspire you to run? I mean, how do you view your position now in relation to the two Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns? Well, I mean, it's I
2: can't. I can't overstate it, I guess. I mean, I, I probably will understate it. I, I mean, particularly the campaign in 2016. That was what changed my attitude towards electoral politics. Like, I just didn't, I wasn't that interested in it, to be honest. Like, I had my previous organizing experience had been with the labor movement. It had been with Unite Here. And at that time, I I didn't understand. I did not, uh, was not very interested in in elections. I just, I mean you know, I think my first canvassing experience had been for Barack Obama in 2008 in Nevada. Uh, It was not, it was something I enjoyed, but it was not something that changed my life in any particular way. But in 2016, I think I came into uh, the South Philly Bernie office, took it a packet of turf and, you know, thought it was, I was maybe going to do that one or two times, but I was so enthralled by actually being able to speak about a candidate who's, you know, and articulate my own beliefs. And essentially they came out sounding, sounding like the candidate's beliefs. Like that was actually like a completely novel experience for me, but also to just watch a campaign where you had a candidate who clearly responded to uh, social movements, who responded to pressure, who respond, who could be held accountable, who was, who also was licensed by, by movement work. And, you know, there was like a fluid dynamic where uh, I, where you felt like this was enhancing all of the work we were going to do in the future. I knew that immediately at the time that whatever happened with the campaign, it was going to make everything we were doing elsewhere better. And then, we, and so, and that was true. So we, we came, I came out of that and all of us did just transformed by the experience of canvassing in particular, because, you know, you just, I, I was not on social media at the time, uh, I, I was actually totally confused by like the notion of the Bernie bro, like that when people brought that up, I actually had no idea what they were talking about. Cause I had no, I had like not, no relationship to, to, to the media world. And so it was completely novel to me, but um, I just was like, Oh wow. We have this like young, diverse, incredible, like group of people. We should keep the gang together and kind of expand this in, in Philly. And so that's how we founded Reclaim Philadelphia. We just took very seriously or quite literally the, the, like, Sanders rhetoric around a political revolution and electing people to every level of office. And we knew that we had a, a, we knew that people were with us on the values and we just needed to organize. And so, you know, that was how, so we, we had, we formed an organization directly inspired by our experience in the campaign um, and fundamentally that experience of be, talking to people at the doors and talking about your own stake in an election And then and eliciting that same sort of testimony from people at the doors, why Medicare for all would be important for them, or why an end to American imperialism would be important to them, or what have you. And so that was what we wanted to keep up. And then this year, we sought out the endorsement of, of Senator Sanders, and it came through in a completely surprising way. It was actually like I got a text message from their political director, and they said, Bernie is sending out an email with... 10 candidates that he's endorsed including yours let us know if you have any questions and I was like what and then and then the email went out that afternoon and you know then it was yeah so it was, a, it was we were completely caught off guard but we had worked on it for some time but we had no anticipation that it was actually going to happen and so we were and we were one of only at the time one of only three challengers the endorsed number of incumbents and we were one of only three challengers to first state office that so it was, we were incredibly proud and incredibly moved. And, um, you know, I think we saw it. I, I think Bernie ran an incredible campaign this time. I had like, it, but you clearly saw the influence of the organizing that had happened since, since 2016. Um, and I think that'll continue to happen. I think that's the other thing that's to go back to your question, Megan, about AOC. We've also gotten better at this. We have models, we can draw on each other's models part of the reason the AOC effort seems so extraordinary is like may not have been the first, but it sort of felt like the first, you know, and, and you were like, how did she do it? And then now there are many, there are many different models where we can, we can draw on each other's experiences. And, and similarly, this national model has seeded so many things, I think, across the country. And we'll start to see the effect of that in years to come.
0: You write, I believe in that N plus one essay about, um, this dynamic uh, of your of your life is sort of push and pull between on the one hand like being an n plus one editor and you're, you know you wrote this book cubed and you have this like uh, robust intellectual life uh, you're you were an, an editor and writer uh and then on the other hand you were doing things uh like being involved in uh unite here organizing And uh, funnily enough, that's basically my exact same trajectory. The first thing I did out of college was uh, be a a full-time volunteer for Unite Here. Uh, And I know that for me, like... I, I felt like those were two poles that was like on the one hand, it was like an intellectual like, you know, uh, I guess you could call it intellectual radicalism, you know, the, the, the tradition of sort of socialism and radicalism that, that at that point, uh, after I graduated college in 2009, seemed to only be kept alive through books for the most part, uh, books and a handful of what I consider to be sectarian organizations. Um, But I considered that important on some level, but I also recognized that it wasn't, like, a really active force in history at that moment. So I went to Unite Here, where I was like, okay, they're actually doing stuff in the world. Um, And I felt like I was between those two poles. And then for the, the Sanders campaign, for me, felt like the kind of, like, melding of the two. It was like... Here is a campaign that is actually, clearly it's like trying to revive to some degree this tradition of, uh, of American radicalism for the 21st century. Um, but it also like is, 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 it's, it could actually win. Like there's actual, you know, victories are possible in this uh, situation. And so it was the first time where I felt like I could be doing work that could actually have a tangible effect on changing the world uh, that was also like rooted in, in real, you know, real left-wing politics. And so, uh, I wonder if you feel that way about the Bernie campaign. Is it like, it, it brought together these two things that you sort of recognize were important in your life and in politics in a way where they, they could like finally meet up, uh, and that, that obviously have now culminated in you getting elected, uh, to office. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I
2: mean, it never been posed to me that way, but it does, you know, the thing about these campaigns is they're like, is, and this was true of just personally campaigning is like, it's very, it's like intellectually, like very rewarding and it, and it's most similar, I would say actually not to writing, but to editing. Like I, in this sense that you, you have to become expert in like a number of different topics and like you, like you get people to write pieces about things that you can't write about yourself. And so then, but then to actually edit them successfully, you have to learn a lot about that subject or topic or, you know, whatever. And you actually have to find the right person. And so there's something very similar about like, like the policy work where you're, you're like, I'm not, I don't, I have to know kind of everything, but I'm actually quite dumb. And so like about most things. And so I have to, but you, you figure it out and then you learn how to translate those things the 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 language of like of knowledge basically into you have to translate them into language right you have to like translate them into like messaging you have to translate it into ways of communicating to people and then yeah feeling like i could say those things i could say the things that i basically believed and i that's it that's what i have to do like that's what you have to do i mean it's not i'm exaggerating the extent to which you there isn't you know you as, as in writing, as in anything, you are kind of calculating, you are thinking about how you communicate things, you are thinking about the right framing. But it's like, we, you know, it, it, for, this, for a similar reason, I could say that I, I could campaign openly as a socialist. I joined, you know, I think I considered myself a socialist for many years. I, I joined DSA in 2014, um, but it n- was never an issue in this campaign, which is kind of extraordinary. I mean, there was like a bit of red baiting early on. Um, I think there was a push poll about that. The, the My opponent put out, which was pretty hilarious. Like he asked people what they would think of a can of me, if they knew that I edited a magazine for hipster Marxists <laughs> or something like that. And that was like, they put this out and, and, and it was, hilarious. I mean, everyone thought it was great. And they were like, actually it makes me want to vote for more, you know? And so like that, and they, they, I think there was another like like specifically like he's a socialist question but um but it couldn't it didn't really work and and partly it's that our can the incumbent ha- felt that he had to campaign as if he was already ahead of me on all the issues and like actually I didn't add anything to the conversation I think that's probably true at a number of these challenges where like incumbents are like, why are you challenging me? I'm fine. I'm actually, I'm just like you. And so once you say that, you can't then be like, but you're a socialist and I'm not. Because it's like, well then if the issues are the same, then actually the socialist thing is not important really.
1: Being an elected official obviously, you are going to face a lot of pressures and all of them essentially are going to be conservatizing in nature. Um, And there are basically two types of uh, ways that this kind of pressure can be applied. I think the first one is, is just like, you know, classic old fashioned arm twisting. Um, you know, AOC describes this really well, actually, when she spoke about her decision to endorse Bernie Sanders, she, she said that one of the things that helped her come to the conclusion that that was the right thing to do was having spent nine months as an elected official, having people try to twist her arm, which helped her, um, uh, understand how incredible it was that Bernie Sanders managed to stay so politically consistent for so many decades when he presumably was facing similar pressures, right? But the other one is a little a little subtler, which is um, something that I heard Leo Panich say on this podcast in an interview with Micah, which is that, you know, you get into office and you realize that whatever your political differences with a lot of these Democrats may be, um, you know, a lot of them, they're, they're, they're your colleagues, they're fine people, they don't eat babies, as Leo Panage put it. Um, and that can actually be, yeah, can actually pose its own sort of problems, because it, it makes it can make a person afraid to um, antagonize uh, their colleagues. So given all that, I mean, you know, if, I think that if we had like an independent party that represented our political beliefs and that sort of se- separated us from Democrats with a different agenda to ours then that would sort of stiffen our elected officials spines but we don't have that and so um you know I think on some level we we really need true believers in there and, um, and you know, those people need to have, like I think need to have a really solid kitchen cabinet, like people that they're having a conversation with on a regular basis, who they trust and who they would frankly be like, you know, uh, ashamed to let down, right? Um, so anyway, not to scare you, you know all of this stuff anyway. So, um, but I'm just, cu- I'm curious how you're thinking about all of this and how you're preparing to sort of stay stay the course.
2: Yeah, I, it's a it's a great question. And I think we're we're figuring it out now in a way, because we you know fundamentally what you're speaking to is the, is the nature of fear in these in in politics, and I think there's a way in which we should acknowledge that there are going to be these moments where people are trying to instill like deep sources of fear in you as an elected official, and that can be people who are your who are you know possibly your allies and in, who help you come into office, whether they're you know particularly you know we, there's so many ways that you in a campaign you become dependent on so many different people and fundamentally the that way is money and i think that's like this is why you broaden your base of support i mean one of the reasons you broaden your base of support and why you, you people having multiple small dollar contributions is important but if you win, you also have you know larger unions that maybe support you and have larger contributions, and then are like, well, actually, on this particular issue, we're against you, and if you don't vote our way, like we're not going to support you next time. We're gonna we're gonna run a challenger against you. Like that. Like that's those are the sources of fear. And I think the honest thing is just to know that there's going to be moments when you're just afraid. Actually, like we and you have to open you like you said, you have to have people that you trust, who you can open up about your fears to. And the, the only way that we can actually take risks is also to have people who are ready to back us up in some particular way or to, you know, who can, who who are ready to to talk you through these kind of moments in which you're being pressured. Um, the, the, so I think that's, I think, you know, specifically like institutionalizing some of the kind of organizing apparatus in an office like is one way to do it like making sure that you have people who are 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 have a background in organizing and can be you know li- liaison is kind of like a terrible word it just it just happens to be the word that I think people tend to use for these roles but you're like you want to you want to you often when issues come about and I've seen this with like city council issues in Philadelphia in particular like you're often trying to like pre-made coalitions don't often exist you often have to assemble them and so you want someone who's in your office who can help do that and who's also the kind of person that helps keep you honest with your with those with organizations that supported you um so there's that part to it then the, the the i think the point you make about the the kind of awful like the badness of collegiality is like is like a is a good one and i don't I don't know, we'll have to sort of see. I think it's like, I think it's a genuine problem. And I think it's when you start to become more invested in the kind of jockeying for a political position in a body, in a chamber, like a, in a Senate chamber or whatever, or in a city council, that stuff can be very like exciting and edifying and gossipy and like totally pointless ultimately or like or or like or just not what you wanted not what you got in there to do you do have to do some of it i think that's part of why we elect people but like i think that can be all consuming that's when you lose it i think that's what happens i think you know the the angles and the crowleys of the world have have had gotten into that and that's the that's all they do at that point and that's why they're that they're like i'm the head of this the of foreign services committee i'm the head of this committee i'm the head of that Like, and that's how they start to describe themselves is like what, what, what chairmanships they have and what sort of positions they have. And then you realize that they've, that's when they're right for like a challenge.
0: So we've been discussing lots of, uh, you know, ponderous big picture political questions that, that leftist magazine editors and writers like to talk about, but, uh, how about some nuts and bolts? What's on the agenda, uh, both in, uh, in Philly and in Harrisburg, uh, you know once you take office can you describe for listeners what the landscape will be uh, who are people who you consider to be kind of uh you know like-minded people who you would uh, be working with and, and what are the sort of uh, substantive policies questions that are that are up for debate and on the agenda
2: the preliminary question for is 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 and this goes, I mean, this goes back to some of the party questions, but the, the Pennsylvania legislature is Republican controlled. And it is, I mean, it's a slight majority in the Senate. It's a little bit bigger in the House, but it is flippable. You know, just having it in Democratic hands doesn't guarantee a lot of stuff. I mean, but it does help change the picture. If the Democrats are able to retake control of the legislature, that does change what it is we're able to do and how much, you know, how, in terms of how much you're, because a lot of it is defensive and making sure that they're not passing like the most, you know, inserting surveillance cameras into uteruses or just whatever kind of crazy thing the Republican legislature is trying to come up with in, in, you know, otherwise. And so you have to, and trying to block that at any given point. I think Pennsylvania is an extracting state. It is the third largest extractor of new oil and gas after Canada. So in the, in, in, Um, in the world and it needs to we need to we need to change that and so like i think climate change is like fundamentally and just the extractive industries and the power of the fossil fuel industry in the state is the main is to my mind one of the main agendas in the state like and we have an interesting coalition at least personally like that we where we actually were backed by a lot of building trades unions or not a lot i'm sorry just two large two major ones that are not historically pro Green New Deal, let's say, but um, but they knew my politics and they knew what we were going to do, and I think having a labor background was helpful. Um, and so I think actually, pione- like my, for me, pioneering that or just cement creating that coalition, creating a Green New Deal coalition that is also fundamentally a labor coalition is is the is one of my main priorities personally like i think it's just something that we need to do in this state i think we can model it more interestingly in this state as well and um and we have some of the pieces just i mean in this in this election to start to do that um in terms of the body of the senate like there have been a few left like left or progressive victories but i think a lot of the people that people will know from outside pennsylvania like Elizabeth Fiedler, Summer Lee, Sarah like, and then my my future colleague, Rick Krajewski, who won in West Philadelphia. Um, There's more activity in the House, I think. So the Senate doesn't have those figures for the most part. That may change. There's some people running to flip seats, but there are fewer of us. And so you actually have, in a way, more power as a senator than you do in in terms of relationships to the rest of the body. So we'll see. Anyway, that's like that's getting very detailed about it, but I think um, there is a chance to to also change the picture on housing in the state. That's something we campaigned on very very seriously, and we we were like a we were one of a number of candidates across the country who supported a homes guarantee um, and the idea that we should be guaranteeing housing as a right to everyone um, in in our state. And so trying to move trying to move move affordable housing, trying to expand renters' rights, rent control across the state. These are things that we, I would be fighting for as well. But tying that, especially to, a, to our Green New Deal program, our housing has to be decarbonized. It has to be um, near transit. It has to be, there's just a lot of ways in which we should be considering housing and, and climate change in the same breath. So those are the things that I'm focused on, but there's a lot of relationship building. There's a lot of, questions there's a lot of democratic senators who are not who are not pro green new deal most of them i would say and so we but but again something has you know things can change in this chamber this election has changed i've already spoken to some colleagues about future colleagues about their their they they know that we ran on a green new deal they know
0: that it's important things are movable
2: basically
1: well all of that sounds really good
0: Uh, Well, uh, I read in the Philadelphia Inquirer before this interview that uh, during the campaign, a former state senator called you on Facebook, quote, a real asshole. And, uh, having just talked to you, uh, for about an hour, I have to say, uh, well, my judgment is, th- is that that is not true, but uh, I guess we'll have to leave it up to the listener to figure <laughs> that out. Nikhil, <laughs> thank you for, uh, taking the time to, uh, talk to us. Yeah.
1: Thanks. Thanks so much, Nikhil. It was wonderful talking to you.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Micah. Thank you for, this is great. I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the time and I'm um, looking forward to talking again at some point.